I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Pastor A.R. Bernard, the founder of the largest church in New York City, reveals in his most recent book, Four Things Women Want from a Man, why he believes when it comes to creating meaningful relationships, there are four things God wants and women should expect from a man. The core of his message centers on what he says are the vital qualities every man needs to cultivate a healthy and successful relationship. Maturity decisiveness, consistency, and strength. I read that your intention as a founder of one of the largest congregations in America has remained consistent for the past 30 years, and that is to make faith relevant. How have you done that? Relevance means two things for us. Number one, it means practical. It has to be something that you can apply the moment you leave the doors of the church service. Mm-hmm. Second, it has to be socially applicable. It has, it has to help you make sense of the world around you. So I get the chance to shape the lens of people's thinking, their worldview, through the eyes of faith. And for me, all life is spiritual. Mm. What do you mean? Well, when we look at spirituality, we look at the makeup of the human person. Because how do you define it? How do you define spirituality? Spirituality is our human capacity to know and experience God. Mm. We experience God through worship, through prayer, through fasting, through... uh, Silence? Silence, absolutely. Stillness. Solitude. Solitude. And solitude is not being alone. It's being away from the noise and with God and with yourself. And so you hear a lot of millennials say today... I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And also a lot of people watch this show say, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That doesn't concern you, right? No, because I think it's their attempt to move away from organized religion, what Mm -hmm. they've known traditionally. And unfortunately, too much of its expression seems irrelevant, seems antiquated, seems removed from today's present experience. Seems about dogma and control. Yeah, and this millennial generation, they've experienced incredible exposure to information. So they are weighing things not just on name recognition or past history, but on present-day merits. So they think differently. So they've made this distinction, moving away from organized religions, its rules, its regulations, its traditions, and they call it spirituality, which means I still believe in the divine. I still want to connect I believe it's somehow part of my existence. So there's this constant longing inside of me for that something that I can't yeah. put my finger on. Don't we all have that hunger? Yes. That longing, that hunger? It's in all of us. And it can only be resolved when we reconnect with him. Too often people think, especially in Christianity, that God is out to punish the evildoer and get back at humankind some type of revenge. But no. God is not about punishing us. It's about reconnecting us to him and to each other. And so that hunger is in every human, 
regardless of which path of faith you choose. That hunger is... Or if you choose no path. Every human being. Even, even the, the atheist. atheist. Even the oh, atheist. Yeah, we said at the same time. Hey, 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 <laughs> hey that's good. So let's talk about your personal spiritual path. You are a Christian now, but as a young man, I know you were drawn to the nation of Islam. You say this was part of your search for the truth. It began with the resolution of my identity crisis. I grew up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And growing up without a father, my mother, single mother, raising me the best she could, and also being of mixed parentage. My father was white, never knew him. He abandoned my mother and I when I was born. So we left Panama, where I was born, and came to the United States to start a new life. And I grew up in that 60s revolution. So I was looking for strength, for order, Mm -hmm. for something to belong to. And the nation of Islam was appealing. When I was a kid, I used to take the train from Brooklyn up to Harlem. And there, this young man named Malcolm X was Mm. preaching. And these guys were giving out newspapers called uh, Muhammad Speaks. Mm -hmm. And I was taken by that. So Taken by that because there was something in there for the identity of the black man. Yeah, and it really, for me, it became sort of a surrogate father Mm -hmm. because it gave me order, structure, strength to be part of the nation that was important to Mm -hmm. me. But I didn't find God because I Were you looking for God? I didn't know what I was looking for, that longing, that search. You just had that hunger, yeah, yeah. I had a hunger. Yeah. So I knew somehow intuitively that truth... Reality and God were synonymous. If I found one, I would find the others. I found in the nation of Islam an incredible social protest against the failure of the Christian church and white America to address the socioeconomic plights of blacks in this country. That's what I found, but I didn't find God. So I was still open. I was still searching. Well, you had this spiritual epiphany in 1975. Yeah. And you told the New York Times, you described it this way, I felt like someone put a blowtorch to my chest and put it on full blast. I started weeping, and I was no longer the same person. How did God seize your heart as you said he did in that moment? I, I think it's a process that mm-hmm. led me up to that point mm-hmm. because uh, I was in banking. So I had a secretary who was a little Pentecostal woman, mm-hmm. very strict dogma and tradition. So she would hand me little tracks and talk to me about God. But what intrigued me was her childlike faith Faith. in this person. Because she caused me to look at the person of Christ apart from the institution of Christianity. Uh It was simplicity, profundity in simplicity Uh that she demonstrated before me. And it intrigued me. So she told me about a meeting where a former... Uh, leader of the Mau Mau gang, which was a notorious gang in Brooklyn, a guy named Nicky Cruz. He was sharing his story. So I said, I got to hear this because he converted to Christianity. So my wife and I went. That night we were in the church service and he gave his message. And what he was saying wasn't connecting. There was something else going on inside of my own heart. Uh As you're listening. As I was listening. And I somehow knew intuitively that Christ, the Christ, is what I was looking for. Because he made an altar call. So I walked up and he said, you know, would you like to receive Jesus in your heart? I had no idea what that meant, you know. He said, I want to pray for you. I, I said, fine. I was vulnerable. I was open. And then he touched me. And that's when I felt like someone pulled 
blowtorch to my chest, blew a hole in me, and I did something that I would never do, and that was cry in public. I wept, and I couldn't stop weeping. So I walked away from the altar. The service was over. My wife and I are leaving. My secretary and her husband come down because they were in the balcony, and she said, did you get it? Did you get it? I had no idea what I was supposed to get. I said to her, I don't know what I got, but something happened to me, and I'm trying to make sense of it. So at the time you made this discovery, you were married. Yeah. To your wife, Karen. Yeah. And you are a banker, 10 years, yeah. pretty successful. How do you say to your wife, I'm now being called to preach? Did you know it? Was it a feeling, a voice? A... She saw the transformation. She saw you being transformed. She yeah. saw the transformation. Uh, I came home and she tells me that she looked in my eyes and she saw a different person. Ah. She didn't understand it. This is the night after the... Yeah, the night it happened. She said it was like she was looking right through me. So we sat down, we talked about it, and I didn't have the language to explain it. So you walk in and you've been transformed and you know it, you can feel it. Yeah. The problem is you go through such a deep and profound transformation, but you don't understand it. It now sets you on a journey to understand and try to discover what really happened inside of me that night. And that took time. But it was a major thing for you that you also said, going from, you know, black radical activism to embrace Christianity was a major big deal. Yeah, but in the beginning, I had to go through a process of understanding who this Jesus was, why he came, why he did what he did. I mean, the whole idea, the notion of dying on a cross didn't register with me well. Mm -hmm. I talked and thought about wisdom, about knowledge, about understanding, but not sacrifice. So it introduced me to love at a level that I never imagined. Mm. And that's where the whole new journey began. Mm. When did you feel the call? Oh, the call. The call. Yeah. I can look back and with the knowledge that I have now, understand that the call begins early, early in life yeah. before you even know God. Yeah. He has his hands on you. He has a design for your life, and it's something that you discover. Within the first year of this newfound Christianity, this newfound spirituality, I no longer felt the same passion and love for the finance industry. Mm -hmm. I began to see life through a whole new lens. My worldview was changed. Did it change the way you treated people? Did it change I, how I was you trying behaved? to figure all that out. Okay. But yes, it, it changed the way I behaved immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was no longer this aggressive individual that only saw the overthrow of the system as the way to resolve the issues in the black community. I got in touch with love. And that was deep and profound because we all suffer from the inability to love and to be loved. We don't know what love really is. Yeah. And it is there that I discovered that love is the ability to extend yourself to others, expecting nothing in return. You know, in this meritocracy system that we live in, we're all expecting it's a what trade. What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? Yeah. So love is a desire to benefit the one love at the expense of self. Yeah. Because love desires to give. And the contrast is lust, which is a desire to benefit self at the expense of others because lust only desires to get. So I began to see that 
People can love you. People can lust you. And sometimes you can't tell the difference because it's disguised. But you better be able to discern the difference between the two. You mentioned that the calling happens long before you even knew God. Do you believe that everybody has a calling? Absolutely. And that calling is being designed for you by all of the experiences in your life. Yeah, you know, I, the prophet Jeremiah began to look at his own deficiencies mm -hmm. when he got the calling. And he saw his youthfulness, he saw his inability to articulate and communicate well. And the, the scripture says that before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you yeah. and called, called you. you to be a prophet to the nations. Uh -huh. So here, this man has been called by God. He has a whole life designed and laid out before him that he knows nothing about. Now he has to trust the one who designed that life for him. How do we open ourselves to that calling? How can we be more open to hear and more open to find the path that is our calling? First, we have to believe that we do have a purpose. Mm -hmm. It goes back to that eternity in their hearts. We and all every have a purpose. Every person has a purpose. Every individual has a purpose. And when we begin to think that way, we will appreciate the sacredness of all life yeah. and not be destructive to any aspect of life. Yeah. We'll respect people better. Yes. And you know what I think is so fascinating is that I believe that is true, but I think a lot of people get purpose confused with fame or notoriety for purpose. Yeah. 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 They think, well, good. if that's my purpose, then I should know what that is, and everybody else should also know what that is, and I should be known for whatever that purpose is, right? I think we've lost a bit of that now. Very much We're so. lost in that. Well, that's well put by you and insightful because too often people think purpose is static. Yeah. It's that one thing for which I was born. Yeah. But what happens if you achieve that at age 27? You have no reason to live beyond that. Correct. Purpose is not static. Purpose is dynamic. Woo, that's good. Purpose continues to be applied throughout your life. Oh, tweetable moment, I said. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because what your gifts, your talents and abilities that are given to you by God, that remains consistent throughout your life. But how you apply that changes as you live life from one level to another and you go through stages of life. Aristotle said at the intersection where your gift, talents, and abilities meet a human need, therein you discover your purpose. How many times, how many intersections do we meet in life? Many. Many. Not just one. Many. So a big part of your work at the Christian Culture Center involves counseling men. In fact, I understand at one point more than half of your members were men, which is so rare these days. What is the message that draws them in? The average male church membership is about 15%. I was going to think, say, in the United 20. States. I was thinking yeah. 20. 15, 20%. We were at 58% male and 42% female. Wow, that's incredible. When people would come to our church service and they would look out on the ground, they would see these guys in ties and bow ties and suited up because some of the disciplines that I learned in the nation, all right, I didn't lose when I became a Christian. Those are things that I continued mm -hmm. and I brought that into how I managed and ran the church. So men had a very disciplined, uh, high profile in the church 
and they were seen as the protectors of women. I believe that when a man becomes the man that God designed him to be, it has a liberating impact on a woman. Wow. It frees that woman to be the woman that God designed her to be. Yeah, you said it's focusing on the man that will liberate yeah, the woman. Yeah, I believe that. How and, so? How so, specifically? Well, the number one complaint that women have about men is that men don't listen. Yeah. So, when I finished the manuscript, I gave it to my wife. I said, read it, tell me what you think. She came back to me with a smile and she said, you've been listening. Oh. So, I've learned to listen. I've learned to observe. You said something, oh gosh, this was years ago in a show that you were doing, and you said, men and women speak the same language, but they interpret things differently. Yeah. Absolutely. But if you don't know that and understand that, then you you're going to have a trouble you're, communicating. You're under, you don't understand why you're hearing something different than exactly, I am. Exactly. But I, I think it's interesting you started with maturity as the first one. Yeah. Because, okay, tell me why. Because maturity doesn't come with age. It begins with the acceptance of responsibility. See, you could have a man who's 60, 66 years old and he's still an adolescent. Yes. You could have a man who's 20 years old and he's very responsible. He's mature. So maturity begins with the acceptance of responsibility for our words, our thoughts, our motives, our actions, and our attitudes. The women that I interviewed for the book cannot tell you how many of them said, well, I just wish he would grow up. Well, what does she mean by that? She means, I want him to be responsible for what he says because words build relationships. Yes. Relationships are based on trust. So when he gives his word and doesn't keep it, he damages the relationship by damaging the trust. I want him to take ownership for what he says. Be truthful with me. This is what she says. I want consistency between what he says and what he does. I realize he's human. Why? I want consistency because I want to be able to trust. Exactly. Exactly. And when trust is broken, the relationship is damaged and she becomes insecure in the relationship. Right. And God wants the same thing. Absolutely. Yes. He wants the same thing from us. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to be decisive. Decisiveness is the ability to make decisions confidently and quickly. And in order to do that, you have to have a set of values and principles that guide your decision-making process. You have to be focused and you have to be stable of mind. And it's interesting that, you, okay, so you have uh, maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and then strength. It's interesting to me because, to me, maturity and decisiveness and consistency equal strength or represent strength. That's how you actually get strong is by doing those things. Well, you hit the nail on the head because strength, I'm not talking about physical, right, macho stuff. Right. I'm talking about strength of character. Yeah. You say on page 162, it's the courage, I love this, the courage to live, live out, out your, your convictions That's right. no matter what the crowd is doing. That's right. And that's strength. And a woman wants to see that, that what he says, he's going to stand behind. In fact, when a man is strong, he can be gentle. Because he's strong, Yes. he can be gentle. You say, why write this book now? Several reasons. The first reason has to do with men. Being a responsible male in modern America is a full-time job and a tough one at that. Never before in the history of humankind have distractions been so plentiful and temptations so 
prevalent. Even well-intentioned men can become caught up in seemingly harmless behaviors that can quickly turn destructive. You know, I never thought of it that way before. I thought when men had to go out and actually physically hunt and bring back the meat and go out into the forest, <laughs> that life would have been a lot harder. But you're right, not, there weren't as many distractions. Yeah. yeah. Today we're engaged in a battle that is greater than a physical battle. It's the battle of the mind. And there's so many things to invade our minds and take us away from the right path in life. And men have it difficult. I know that growing up without a father, I picked up images of masculinity from television, from movies, from the neighborhood. I didn't get it in school. There's no course on how to be a man, manhood 101. It was not there, you know, and even in the churches, it was not geared towards And if you men. grow it without a father, how do you figure that out? Exactly. That's a lot of trial and error and sometimes more trial and more error than you even want to imagine. But also the changing culture. All right, the last several decades, we've seen women experience unprecedented wealth and education. Mm-hmm. The upward mobility of women in American society is amazing, and it's great. 60% of college enrollment today is female, only 40% male. Women are taking over jobs and occupying positions of power and influence. And I will tell you, that has become quite intimidating to a lot of men. And I wrote the book because I wanted to give women, number one, a, a, a framework with which to make better decisions. And a way in, in to understand. And I want to give men a standard for manhood that they can measure up to. So I don't want women to have to come down. I want men to come up. Thank you for that. Because we don't want to have to come down. Exactly. We want you to at least meet us right here. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So in four things that women want from a man, you've said that your goal for this book is to help men understand the new role of women in their lives. Ah, Ah, the new role. The new role. What is our new role? I saw one of your interviews that you did, and you asked the question, very important question, powerful question, and that is, what is the lesson that it took longest for you to learn? To learn, yes. Right? And I have to say, in answer to something like that, it's appreciating and understanding my wife's role and value in my life. Ah. That was a tough one because I I just felt I was the responsible one. I had to do it all. But God placed her in my life for a reason, for a purpose. And her role was very, very valuable. It's not till I understood that and embraced that lesson that she became free to really participate in my life in the way that I needed. Okay. What enabled you to see that? Was it something she did or something that you... Crisis. Crisis. And when you I were, was a banker, you, I was yeah. a workaholic. You were a workaholic, and then when you were a minister, workaholic. workaholic. Yes. So I committed the sin of transposition, and that's where you put things that should be second first. And the ministry, people, yes. all that became more important than my family. And it really hurt her. Because I depreciated her. And whatever you depreciate in life decreases in value. So her value became lessened in my eyes and in her own eyes. Yes. See? So I had to make those adjustments. Yeah. The turning point, I was in Dallas, Texas, attending a pastor's conference. Yes. And the pastor told his story, and I felt, oh, gosh, this guy's living my story. Went back to the hotel room. 
spent the night in deep thought and reflection. Woke up that morning, I just started weeping and I couldn't stop crying because I felt the weight of responsibility for what I created in the relationship. And I asked God's forgiveness because as the man, I'm responsible for the condition and state of affairs in my home and in my marriage. And I felt to call her. And I felt God impress upon my heart, don't expect her to receive what you're going to say. But I didn't care about that. It didn't matter because this needed change she would benefit from, but I needed it more than she did. So I called her and I said, I apologize for the state of affairs in our relationship. And I take full responsibility for the condition of our marriage, for the condition of our family and your emotional condition right now. I'm sorry. And I'm making a change as of this moment. She said to me, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it didn't matter. Yeah. It did not matter. Yeah, because she was still so hurt. She, she was hurt. And I worked harder on me. And that became a leadership principle for me. Whatever you want people to become, you must become it first. So you've got to model what you want people to think about you and how you want them to feel about you. So I went to work on me. I don't work on my congregation. I work on me and try to present someone that they could respect, admire, and look up to for their state of soul and leadership and guidance. But you've come to, 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 to know and understand, as you say here, in uh, Four Things Women Want From a Man, that marriage is, a, is it's an empathetic union. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Where the two, there, there are many benefits to marriage. Mm -hmm. It could be companionship, sex, children, money, you name it. But those are benefits. There's only one goal, and that is that the two become one. That's a process over time. It's an empathetic union in that you get to the place where you understand that if your spouse hurts, you hurt. So we feel each other's hurts, celebrations, pain, gladness, joy, because we become one. I discovered it one night. We were on a trip driving down to Washington, D.C. And, you know, when I drive, I'm on a mission. So I'm thinking about getting there, not the journey. So about two hours into the drive, she says to me, she says, are you hungry? And I said, no. And I just keep driving. But I noticed she got quiet. There was no more conversation. So when we got to D.C., I said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I said, uh, are you sure you're fine? She said, well, actually, I was hungry. And you wouldn't even have the decency to pull over and stop so we can get something to eat. I said, but why didn't you just say you were hungry? She said, I did. I said, no, you didn't. She said, I did when I asked you if you were hungry. I said, oh, that's how it works. <laughs> so now that I understand. How long have you had you been married when this happened? Oh, my gosh. Oh, God, 10, 15 years. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Years. Yeah. So I got it. So now yeah. when you would... hungry means do you want to eat? Exactly. Do, exactly. do, do we want to eat? Exactly. Don't exactly. we want to stop and get something? You got it. You got <laughs> it. I didn't get it. Yeah. So that's why I began listening more and focusing on what she said, how she said it. And I will tell you, it was revolutionary in our relationship. I learned so much about myself as a man so much about her as a woman. So it's because you've been paying attention that you're able to, to come and do this. Yeah. 
Where does spirituality fit in in this volatile world of politics? Volatile world. Religion gives us three things. It gives us morality, mm -hmm. a sense of right and wrong. It gives us guidance that we can believe in beyond ourselves, that somehow there's a divine hand at work. And it also gives us consolation. Mm -hmm. It gives us hope for the future. So the place of spirituality is to be the moral arbiter within society. Uh, it is to look for divine guidance, whatever position we serve in society. But it also gives us hope when we're in crisis and when things are volatile. Right. And we think that, you know, the world is going to end. No, it's not. Life will continue. It's cyclical. We go through stages. We go through levels and seasons. But life will continue. Can you speak to the painful divide we're all experiencing right now? Yeah, I think that we're all talking, but yeah. no one's listening. Oh. So we're talking at each other, trying to get our point across. Yeah. We need to listen to each other. And listening is an art. It has to be focused. And you've got to get out of yourself in order to truly listen to someone else. I once read where you said that every uh, personal crisis begins with an identity crisis. So is it possible that we all, the collective body of the United States, are experiencing a collective identity crisis? You hit the nail on the head again. Yeah. Identity crisis is common to every human being as an individual. But remember, whatever conflicts we're having, we're going to express that out into the world around us. So that conflict continues to expand as the group expands. So when you have a body called a nation, that is an entire grouping that can be in crisis. Right. You take when we were trying to figure out how do we respond to the Syrian refugees, and you will hear, well, we should take them in because that's who we are as America. And then the others say we should protect ourselves against them because that's who we are as America. So you sit there and you ask the question, well, who, Who are, are we, we as yeah. America? Yes. That's an identity crisis. And I think that started back in the 60s when we began to embrace change but not know how to work through it together. And those who resisted change wanted to maintain the status quo. Do you think that social media has contributed to the worldwide identity crisis? Ooh, absolutely. And let me tell you, there are benefits to social yeah, of media. Course, of course. It's, it's good, all right? But at the same time, it allows you to take on several identities. You can be whoever you want, and you can change identities, you know, on a whim. I think that's problematic because when do we discover who we are as the individual? Because every one of us has a unique DNA. We are a unique creation of God. And until we reconnect with God and discover that identity in God, we will continue to look to become someone other than who we've truly been made to be. Do you have a prayer for our country? Do you pray for our country? I pray for wisdom. Mm -hmm. I pray for guidance for all of our leaders at every level. And I pray for humility because you cannot embrace wisdom and guidance if you're not willing to humble yourself. How do you keep yourself humble when you have one of the largest congregations and 
people refer to you as the kingmaker, the spiritual power broker. I mean, you have reached um, a level that I think a lot of people would aspire to, where if you wanted to, you have this use of power and influence and all of that. So what, what, is, the, what is it that keeps you humble? Power is not for you. It's given to you to serve people. And if you think that it's all about you, you're in trouble. And you have to intentionally build into your life those things that will protect you from yourself. I don't underestimate my ego or my ability to make decisions that are detrimental. So I try to build into my life the systems and the people that keep me in check and in balance. What's the purpose of the soul? The soul, if we define it as the mind, will, and emotions, that integrated system that make up who we are as a unique person, an individual, it becomes central to the choices that we make in life. It is the very essence of who we are as an individual and the responsibility that we have to shape and fashion that soul so that it functions in a way that we experience our best life. It's been said that you should know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What is the truth? Well, it depends on how you apply it because there is universal truth. Truth, period, is eternal. Mm -hmm. Like one of the universal truths that I've learned that it's not what you get or achieve in life, it's the person you become in the process. But then there's that personal truth that I subscribe to And that personal truth is who I identify with and how I identify spiritually, which is most important to me. Because when we think about identity, we think in terms of culture, race, religion, you know, who your parents were, social status, etc. But when I resolved the identity crisis through my relationship with God and that I was made in the image of God and I began to think of myself in that way, it changed the game for me. Wow. What is the biggest obstacle to peace as you see it? Selfishness. I think in order to love, we've got to be unselfish. And people are not willing to let go of their own self-interest. I think there would be peace. My wife and I will be married 45 years this year. And in the beginning, because... Love is redemptive, it's sacrificial, and it's unconditional. So when we got married 45 years ago, we had a list of the things that we loved about each other, Mm. right? And that's wonderful. But after a while, we discovered that if you have reasons to love someone, you have conditions. And when the conditions are not met, the relationship is in trouble. Ooh, that's good. So today, we love each other for no reason. That's unconditional love. It takes courage to love like that. It takes selflessness to love like that. And until we get to that place in society, we're going to continue to have the conflicts that we have. Oh, that's one of the best definitions I heard. We love each other for no reason, and that's what unconditional... Unconditional love. Wow. So what is the root of racism? Fear. Yeah. Fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear that drives us to be 
um, shaped in our thinking by stereotypes, by prejudices, by biases, by things that we don't even know about the other person. That's why I love to sit down and have a person tell me your story. And I've done that with so many people from so many walks of life, people with lifestyles totally different from mine, diametrically opposed to mine sometimes. And I listen to that, their story and I share my story. And all of a sudden, a bond of relationship is created. And talking about sharing your story, what is the most difficult um, choice or decisions you've had to make to ultimately fulfill your destiny? Wow, so many decisions I had to make along the way. Yeah. But I think the defining moment was accepting God's love for me in spite of myself. Oh. That was important because we can think of all the reasons why we don't deserve the kind of love that God gives redemptively, sacrificially, and unconditionally. And once I accepted my value in God's eyes, that settled everything for me. And it didn't require me to be affirmed or approved by people mm. because now the divine approval is there. What are you most proud of yourself for? Obviously, you've done, accomplished so much. I'm most proud that after all of this time, after all the years of marriage, mm -hmm. 40 years of ministry, I'm proud that my wife can sit on the front row on Sunday morning, hear me preach, and genuinely say, Amen. Because she knows the man, and she can still respect the man and love the man. That's, that's the best thing I ever heard. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Sorry. That's great. That, I just... Ah, that's the best thing I ever heard. That's the best. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul conversation. Thank you for listening.